Hi, I'm Robbie Kopp, and you're listening to ADA Live. Yo. Hi, let's roll. Let's go. Hello, everyone. On behalf of the Southeast ADA Center, the Burton Blatt Institute at Syracuse University, and the ADA National Network, welcome to ADA Live. I'm Mary Mortar of the Southeast ADA Center. Listening audience, if you have questions about the ADA, you can use our online form at adalive.org. Emergencies and disasters can happen at any time. According to the International City and County Management Association, an association of city and county managers, 76% of local governments have responded to a major disaster in the past 15 years. Floods, blizzards, and hurricanes were the most reported disasters, and of these, hurricanes were the most reported. Although over 87% of local governments have a disaster response plan, there are huge gaps in addressing the safety of people with disabilities, low-income citizens, and our aging population. Moreover, the Federal Emergency Management Agency, commonly known as FEMA, reports that a majority of Americans have not practiced what to do in a disaster and do not have a personal disaster plan. An important function of state and local government is to protect citizens from harm, including helping people prepare for and respond to emergencies. Making state and local government emergency preparedness and response programs accessible to people with disabilities is a critical part of this responsibility. The Americans with Disabilities Act of 1990, or the ADA, requires state and local government programs to be fully accessible for people with disabilities. Joining us today to discuss emergency preparedness and the ADA is Robbie Kopp, Director of Advocacy and Community Access for ABLE South Carolina. Welcome Robbie, we're glad to have you here today. So glad to be with you. Let's get right into it. Can you tell me what parts of the ADA apply to emergency preparedness? This is such a great question. Uh, the biggest consideration for the ADA and emergency management and preparedness is Title II for state and local governments. Planning, response, and recovery are all programs provided by local governments, primarily the state and the counties. But other parts of the ADA may apply as well, and only when the ADA is fully uh, realized and fully implemented in each of these agencies will we see the greatest gains. We know that Organizations that have people with disabilities on staff, uh, flexing their muscles under ADA Title I, uh, those organizations are much more likely to better consider the needs of people with disabilities. Uh, but that doesn't change the bedrock requirement under Title II that all programs, activities, and services will be made accessible for folks with disabilities. Thanks for that, Robbie. I'm so glad you mentioned that uh, agencies need to have people with disabilities involved in the planning and preparedness. That's such a key part. 
tell me more about how the ADA guides the state and local emergency response. Absolutely. Well, when we think of the ADA, the, the bedrock of ADA's work is to make sure that there's no discrimination of people with disabilities. That is especially important with a disaster because when disaster strikes, everyone is at risk. Uh, we are working to uh, make sure that a storm or an earthquake or other uh, disaster, natural or man-made, uh, doesn't have the worst impacts possible, but those impacts are, are mitigated. They're, they're made lesser. Uh, so with that, we want to make sure that people with disabilities equally benefit from those programs, activities, and services. If the plans don't include people with disabilities, then there are going to be some considerable issues, whether that's with transportation or, or sheltering specifically that we'll talk a little bit more about later on. What are the ADA obligations of emergency responders specifically? I just touched on that a little bit, uh, but really to put it most directly is to provide equal access to programs, activities, and services to all their constituents. So when we talk about uh, emergency planning, an emergency plan is going to have lots of different parts. Uh, and we'll, we'll break down those parts a little bit as we continue this conversation. But we want to make sure that every one of those parts, whether it is a plan for how to provide transportation or evacuation or sheltering or how to deliver meals if, if we find that we're in a prolonged shelter-in-place scenario, every one of those things, every one of those pieces of the plan should include how that program activity or service is going to be implemented for everyone and reaching everyone. One of the big things that in my work with ABLE South Carolina that I've seen is the real clear need of ADA coordination inside emergency management. So your listeners, I'm sure they're, they're well brushed up on the ADA, maybe better than the general population. Uh, but with the requirements of Title II, there's an expectation for state and local governments that they'll have an ADA coordinator that is working to address barriers in my experience, I've seen very few uh, ADA coordinators inside emergency management. Here in South Carolina, we do have uh, an ADA coordinator inside the emergency management division on the state level. And on the local level, it's a little more piecemeal uh, with organizations uh, being less directly aware, having someone less clearly assigned to ADA coordinator responsibilities most often. Uh, and that, that puts us at a disadvantage. That makes it so that there isn't a key staff inside the organization that's really working to address barriers before they become real barriers while they're just a, a plan. It's needed. There needs to be more attention paid to the ADA coordinator obligation and its impact on every piece of the plan. I agree with you. That's an important key component that we need to work on. Turning our uh, questions a little bit in another direction. Are there other laws besides the ADA that address inclusion of people with disabilities in emergency preparedness? There are. We, we look to the Rehabilitation Act of 1973 uh, as a mechanism uh, for any organization that receives federal funding. Uh, so that's an important one to think about when a state or local government is is purchasing communications equipment or they're, uh, they're building a building or they're making adjustments to a building, we would expect 
that they would follow the requirements of the Rehabilitation Act. They are expending funds, they receive federal funds, uh, and everything that they purchase needs to be inclusive and accessible. Apart from that, the real, the real heart of the inclusion of people with disabilities is made the most clear through the Americans with Disabilities Act. Excellent points again. Thanks for pointing that out, Robbie. What are emergency support functions, which are also known as ESFs, and what is their role in emergency preparedness planning? ESFs are hugely important. They are part of how, this, how the system is built. So with emergency support functions, these are uh, items that are individual pieces of how an overall plan will work. Each of the emergency support functions will have their own plans for how they will work. Uh, and they'll have addendums and, and annexes, additions to those plans that say whose responsibility is what. I think from the outside for folks who have not been uh, working with emergency management agencies, it's our first thought is to look at it as one piece or as one system, but there are emergency support functions for each individual piece that we're concerned about. And with that, there's an opportunity for the disability community to participate and provide input and insight. So ESFs are, are huge. They're like the pillars that hold up uh, the whole emergency response uh, apparatus. And with that, there are some that are, that are gonna have a bigger impact on people with disabilities that are public facing. And there are some that may not have very many impacts directly on the disability community. Uh, so something like donated goods, the emergency support function that just receives things that are donated. Uh, there may not be a huge impact on the disability community because they're going to receive the donated goods no matter what. Uh, where you might have more impacts are things like public information, where information is going out to the community to make sure that folks are ready, and we want to make sure that information is inclusive and accessible. So the ESFs, they're very diverse. Uh, they include the individual pieces like law enforcement or uh, rescue or donated goods uh, or transportation or mass care, often referred to as sheltering. There's a lot of individual emergency support functions and again, with each of those, an opportunity for input to make the plans stronger. Well, as you've been mentioning, one of the very key components of any emergency plan is communication. And as we know, effective communication for people with disabilities is critical in an emergency. And it's also our right under the Americans with Disabilities Act. Can you please uh, tell us why accessible public information is an important part of emergency planning. It's also important in areas such as press conferences and digital communication resources. Absolutely. With the numbers that you shared at the open of this podcast, uh, we have seen a lot of declared disasters in the United States over the last 15 years. Uh, chances are listeners may have found themselves either in an area that was impacted by disaster or have loved ones that were in an area impacted by disaster. With that in mind, uh, maybe think back to what communication you received just before the disaster hit or, or just after. These communications 
for South Carolina, most often it's that a hurricane is, is developing and is headed in our general direction. Uh, those communications give everyone an opportunity to make your last minute preparations, to batten down the hatches, to make sure that your communication plans are set and that you know where you're going to go if you have to evacuate. All of those really important things are the difference between life and death in a lot of cases. If you're in a floodplain and uh, there is clear evidence that that floodplain is going to be flooded during an event and we have some warning, having that warning instantly, as quickly as it's available, can save your life. And that's what makes the accessibility of these communications so vitally important is that if you get that communication, maybe it went out over a video and it wasn't captioned and there was no ASL interpreter. If you need either that captioning or that ASL interpreter and you have to wait a few hours for the accessible version of that video to get posted, you are hours behind your neighbor. And those hours can really change how effectively you can weather the storm. So it's, it's, I don't think the importance of effective communication can be understated with a disaster. It's, it's the most important thing that will determine if you have what, what you, if you know what you need to know in order to uh, adapt and to make your plans or to get out. If you have experienced a disaster recently, think about the information and how you received it. Uh, every one of those outlets needs to be accessible. Um, not everyone is going to be sitting by uh, a computer or a TV to watch the press conferences from the governor. For the folks that can, that information needs to be equally effective uh, and it needs to be accessible for folks in the same instant that it's released. Uh, for folks who get information other ways, like online, whether that is through uh, news stories or it's through public releases from an emergency management agency, those communications should be accessible as well. Uh, we all consume media. We all get information a lot of different ways. Uh, we want the first way that touches us uh, to work for every person that it touches. Thanks, Robbie. That, that was a, such an excellent explanation of why it's so important. And I, I couldn't agree with you more. Being a person who's hard of hearing myself, um, I miss sometimes those those notices, uh, even the ones on my phone, because I don't hear my phone beep and I don't keep it with me 24/7 like a lot of people do. Um, I've missed you know emergency warnings, uh, you know, and found them later. Um, so I I understand the importance of uh, all of us being vigilant and demanding our rights and demanding that the communication be be accessible for everyone. Thank you. ADA Live listening audience, if you have questions about this topic or any other ADA Live topic, you can submit your questions online at adalive.org or call the Southeast ADA Center at 1-404-541-9001. Let's pause here for a word from our feature organization, ABLE South Carolina. ABLE South Carolina is a center for independent living, an organization not about helping people with disabilities, but built on the central concept of self-empowerment. We are a consumer-controlled, community-based, cross-disability nonprofit 
that provides an array of independent living services. We do everything it takes to empower people with disabilities to live active, self-determined lives, including advocacy, services, and support. More than half of our staff are persons with disabilities, as are over half of our board directors. We didn't just learn this, we live it. To learn more about ABLE South Carolina, visit www.able-sc.org. Welcome back, everybody. We are talking with Robbie Kopp from ABLE South Carolina about emergency preparedness for people with disabilities. Robbie, um, there are two important community services that we haven't talked about yet, transportation and mass care, that are critical for people with disabilities during an emergency. What are some resources and tips that you can recommend for these two aspects of emergency planning for people with disabilities? I really appreciate this question, and I want to answer it in a few different ways for your audience. First is with transportation and mass care. Uh, if you are a person with a disability, or if you're not, uh, what is your personal plan? How are you going to uh, move from where you are to where you need to be, whether that's a nearby shelter or if it's a shelter, an evacuation shelter outside of your county? How are you going to get there? What is your plan? The second piece, what is your plan for sheltering? Do you have what you need to shelter in place? Do you know where you will go if you're not sheltering in place? I would tell you that uh, all of the conversations that I'm part of, just about every time, there is a reminder that emergency shelters are a shelter of last resort. So there is uh, a hope that for individuals that need to leave their homes in a disaster, that there is somewhere that they can go, maybe a family member out of town, uh, a loved one. Uh, make sure that in your personal plan, you know where you would go and how that would work. For folks who are on the planning side, it is hugely important that we're considering the disability community in these plans. And again, when it comes to state and county planning, the plans can be really different. Uh, here in South Carolina for, we'll start with transportation. For transportation, the state plan uh, includes getting people from uh, centralized pickup points to a safe place outside of that community. So if you think about that as the state plan, what's missing? And, and I would expect you'd say, well, how am I gonna get to that central pickup point? And that is where the counties typically have responsibility. It's, it's the expectation that the counties in their county plan would be able to uh, transport folks locally from where they are to those central pickup points or to in-county shelters. That is a really big deal. There are a lot of places that, uh, a lot of considerations that have to be made for that to work correctly. And locally, you may want to check in with your local emergency manager and say, hey, I, I live at X, Y, and Z address. If there is an evacuation of our, our entire community, uh, who will come and get me? What, what does the plan say? What transportation services will be available? Second is, are those transportation services accessible? Are they going to meet my needs? Uh, are they, are they going to work for my entire family? And make sure that 
you know the answer to those questions. This is kind of the important balance between personal preparedness and, and local services is we have to know what we will do and we have to know what will be available for mass care. Uh, that is the lingo uh, for shelter operations. If we're needing to shelter, what are the needs that I have and will those needs be able to be met at a shelter? Uh, shelters are not the Ritz-Carlton. They're not fancy. Um, we are not going to have uh, room service or turn down service or anything like that. Uh, but we do want to make sure that the shelters can at least meet my basic needs. Am I going to be safe? Uh, is there going to be food at appropriate intervals? Uh, am I going to be able to get cleaned up if I'm, if I'm there for a considerable amount of time? Uh, are there accessible restroom facilities? Can I get all my needs met in this shelter? For uh, an important protection under the ADA, there's really, there's great guidance from Department of Justice that is directed towards emergency managers. Any emergency manager listening to this, if you're not familiar with it already, uh, check it out. We'll make sure it's included as a resource. But the, the resource guide lays out what are the expectations for, for general population shelters, the shelters for uh, everyone. And one of the expectations is that it will be accessible and that you can use the restrooms. Uh, also that if you have medication that needs to be refrigerated, that that can be taken care of at your shelter as well. Uh, if you need backup power because of your equipment, you should be able to get that in the general population shelter as well. In addition to that, uh, states, I, I've seen states use different terms for another type of shelter. Uh, in South Carolina, they're now referred to as medical need shelters run by a separate department. They provide uh, more medical supports, not medical services, but supports for individuals who need them in, in a different shelter. Uh, this is important to know because these medical need shelters aren't always uh, opened in the same way that a general population shelter is. And there's usually a triage that makes sure this is the right shelter for you. Uh, and this is the, the nearest one that will meet your needs. Uh, so if, if you think that the general population shelters aren't going to meet all your basic needs, and, and I would say most of the time you should have a pretty high confidence that the general population shelters will, then you have to know it, how do I make contact with the triage line, how do I make sure that I'm getting connected with the shelter that will better meet my needs in advance? You don't want to be scrambling for, with that, there's, there's a lot of considerations. There's considerations for individuals and making sure that the transportation can meet your needs and that shelters will meet your needs and, and getting connected with the right resources. And there are also a lot of considerations for emergency planners. Emergency planners should be prepared to meet the needs of everyone in their local area. And, and truthfully, what we've seen is that folks with disabilities are more likely to rely on emergency response services than folks without disabilities. So it's not just you may have someone with a disability, but uh, you're going to have people with disabilities who need to access each of the emergency supports that opens as they open. Uh, so including them in every, in every layer of that. Uh, the the next question, and I'm I'm super excited to jump into it. Uh, I'll let you ask it still, but with these 
with these two pieces, especially there, the guidance has changed. It is 2020 and there is now a global pandemic and and we're going to have to address some of those differences as well. So we are wondering, everybody's so consumed by this pandemic. It's affected every part of our lives uh, over the last several months. And so it's going to, and it has affected emergency planning. Uh, can you talk about that and, and how we move going forward um, in the area of COVID-19? Absolutely. Uh, again, I'm going to split this among consumers and emergency planners. What I would tell you is, in my experience, uh, consumers have seemed less concerned about the underlying disasters because COVID-19 has taken so much attention and energy and we're all still weathering COVID-19. Uh, with that in mind, we, we have to make sure that uh, our personal plans have been adjusted and updated to include this, this additional health risk. If you're planning on relying on local transportation services or you're planning on relying on, on shelter services, you may want to rethink that. First of all, as any other year, uh, these services are services of the last resort. So that part hasn't really changed. But now with COVID-19, each of these services, uh, using them, you, you may have some additional COVID-19 considerations with coming in contact with people that you wouldn't normally, coming in contact with strangers, and, and we can't always guarantee how safe those strangers have been and how, how isolated they've been. So with that, it's really important. If you find that you're in a position, maybe you live along the coast, and we know that this hurricane season is, is forecast to be extremely active, uh, maybe it's time for us to, to do that harder work and have that conversation with a family member out of state. With a family member, there may, may still be some, some coronavirus uh, considerations with transmission, but it's different than being in a mass care shelter, uh, which, which may still be on the table in, in some communities. With that in mind, so on the, on the emergency planning level, uh, plans have been adjusted and, and are being updated to make sure that there are non, we refer to them as non-congregate settings. These are places to shelter, oftentimes looks like a hotel room, but allows our family unit to stay separate from other family units as much as possible. These plans have, have been put into place. Uh, communities are playing a little bit of wait and see, find out how many people are going to have to evacuate and then start having more conversations with with hotels uh, to make sure that services are available. Uh, with a preference towards non-congregate shelters, but when those non-congregate shelters are full and capacity is reached, then, then there's going to end up being more use of, of mass care shelters where there may be more, more risk of coronavirus. And that's an important point to consider, Robbie. And, and I know not all of us out there have thought about that, but but we have to think about it, especially if we live in an area where disasters happen frequently, like you do. South Carolina, all along the coast, is so vulnerable. We really have to think about those things. They're, they're difficult questions, but we have to be prepared. Robbie, can you tell us what does an inclusive emergency preparedness plan look like 
and how can uh, people with disabilities and our audience listening today get involved in plan development? This is a great question, and, and this question is hugely important because the representation of people with disabilities on the local level is it's really what the decision makers listen to. Uh, from outside, we can, we can give all sorts of technical assistance and guidance, and we can provide tools, uh, and, and many jurisdictions will use that and will apply it. But until the, there is a person in the room with a disability that is part of that local community saying, hey, what about me? How will this plan meet my needs? And, and not just in a selfish way, of course, but uh, as we address that person's needs, we're addressing other folks' needs who may have who may have a similar need for accessible transportation or for uh, backup power at a shelter. With that, uh, the importance of that local representation and participation, these plans on your county level are being made all the time and being refined all the time. Uh, now is a great time to get in touch with your emergency manager and, and maybe just start the conversation hi, I know you're my emergency manager. I'm a local constituent and I want to help. I want to get involved uh, and, and start the conversation that way. I think a lot of times professionals in, in an, any number of fields, they're pinged by outsiders and they don't always know what those requests are. But when you can say, hi, I'm local. Um, I live in X, Y, and Z neighborhood. Uh, I want to, to be a support and a resource to you. Uh, folks are typically pretty responsive to that. So on the on the county level, I think it's that simple. There's there usually are not a ton of solicitations. Hey, come participate with us, um, which which may be some room for for stronger plans on the county level. But if you do make that first contact with your county emergency management office, uh, I would expect that they'd be open to that conversation, especially when you come offering insight and input and and support for the state level. It's not quite as it's not quite as simple as calling your state emergency management division and saying, "Hey, I want to help." Um, you can try that. There are in in most states, it's a best practice to have an advisory committee for all emergency services, so that the disability community can can provide some input and share some ideas. Uh, I'd encourage you to check out if your state has one. And then if not, you've got more to talk with your, your state folks with. There are a lot of other organizations that participate in emergency response as well that I don't think you can overlook. Uh, your Centers for Independent Living may have varying levels of involvement with emergency preparedness. So that might be a good place just to ask the question and, and make sure that your centers, your cells locally are involved. Uh, otherwise, there are nonprofits that are international or local that are involved in emergency preparedness that are always looking for volunteers and input. And really, the representation of the disability community is valuable everywhere. Thank you so much for giving us so much to think about and do and be proactive. Um, if if the listeners out there feel the need to get involved. You've certainly give us, given us a roadmap for that. Two comments I want to make. One is uh, you've talked about 
emergency preparedness groups on the state and local level. I happen to be a member of the one here in Georgia, which is called the Georgia Emergency Preparedness Coalition for individuals with disabilities and older adults. And uh, like you said, uh, I think all states in the Southeast have a similar uh, group in them and then other states do as well, many other states, California in particular, uh, lots of other states. So um, you can, your local uh, regional ADA center can help you locate that if that's what you're looking for. Um, secondly, I want to point out and remind everybody about um, under Title II of the ADA, uh, state and local government agencies like these agencies, most of them are, are operated on the state or local level, they do have an ongoing obligation to provide um, modifications to programs, practices, and procedures to include people with disabilities and to um, not be discriminatory. So just remember, keep that in mind when you're, when you're reaching out to those groups. Um, I want to thank you. Uh, we're getting close to the end of the episode, Robbie, and um, I wanted to ask you what important tips and takeaways are there for um, people with disabilities and those that support them regarding emergency preparedness? Absolutely. I, I would say the biggest takeaway is now is a great time to either make an individual preparedness plan or to review your individual preparedness plan and make sure that you know what will happen when a disaster strikes in your area. Uh, two is when you feel confident with your plan, get involved and participate and make sure that our community plans, whether that's city, county, state, uh, make sure that those plans are including people with disabilities and, and provide equal access to all of the vitally important services that are provided in a disaster from communication to sheltering to transportation uh, and more, making sure that uh, when you have what you need, other folks uh, in your community have what they need too. Uh, and it's important for us to make sure that we're, we're increasing the access at every turn for every piece of emergency preparedness. Even though it's a service of last resort, uh, they are services that are so vitally important that uh, we have to make sure that they are, they're fulfilling the obligations that have been set forth by the Americans with Disabilities Act. Uh, I, think, I think the last takeaway is in, in the recent celebration of 30 years of the Americans with Disabilities Act, uh, for any professional that is continuing to, to skirt the requirements of the ADA or, or is not aware of the requirements of the ADA, uh, we're past time. It, it's, it's really time that uh, take a moment now today to begin to address uh, some of the, what may be a shortcoming in your plan and making sure that folks with disabilities are included. After 30 years, um, this is for many a whole lifetime, uh, a whole lifetime that our communities may have been at risk of a disaster and we've known better because of the ADA uh, there's no more time for excuses. It's it's time to be inclusive now. Thanks so much, Robbie, for being our guest today. And thank you, ADA Live listeners, for joining us for today's episode. We are grateful to our guest, Robbie Kopp, 
the Director of Advocacy and Community Access for ABLE South Carolina, for sharing his time and valuable insights on emergency preparedness for people with disabilities. You may submit your questions and comments on this podcast online at adalive.org. You can access all ADA Live episodes on our website at adalive.org. Every episode is archived with streamed audio, accessible transcripts, and resources. Listen to the SoundCloud ADA Live channel at soundcloud.com slash ADA Live. Download ADA Live to your mobile device podcast app by searching for ADA Live. We also encourage you to celebrate, learn, and share about the ADA throughout the year and the ADA 30th anniversary in 2020. Check out the ADA Anniversary Toolkit at adaanniversary.org. The toolkit is a product of the Southeast ADA Center and the ADA National Network. It features logos, social media posts, monthly themes, and other resources to keep the celebration going. Also, on a social media platform of your choosing, use hashtag thanks to the ADA to share what the ADA means to you, a moment in your life when you were thankful for the ADA. Share with hashtag thanks to the ADA. Another reminder, if you have questions about the ADA, you can submit your questions anytime online at adalive.org, or you can contact your regional ADA center at 1-800-949-4232. Remember, all calls are free and confidential. ADA Live is a program of the Southeast ADA Center. Our producer is Celestia Orazda with Beth Miller-Harrison, Mary Mortar, Emily Ruber, Marcia Schwanke, and Barry Whaley. Our music is from Four Wheel City, the movement for improvement. See you next episode and be safe, everybody.